Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. I'm happy to have you regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast believes that trans rights are human rights, that abortion is healthcare, and that black lives matter, and we stand in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show, as well as links to institutions fighting for reproductive justice, can all be found in the show notes. I don't have a lot to talk about here at the top, just the usual. Please feel free to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Doesn't even need to be five stars. Be honest and leave a review telling me what you think of the show. As usual, don't bother complaining to me about being woke or a gall-dang liberal commie, because you will not change that part of me. I spent the first 20 years of my life being a conservative, religious, intolerant bigot, and looking back at who I was, I hate that guy. I mean, I guess you can complain if you really want to, but I'm going to make fun of you on Twitter if you do, because F that kind of behavior in the ear. Pick up a copy of the Colin Malatrap Museum of Curious Oddities and Strange Antiquities. If you don't want to support Beesbo and his horrible business practices, and I don't blame you, you can email me and we'll work out how to get you a digital copy direct from me. You pay the same amount, I get more, and Beesbo gets nothing, so it's a win-win-win all the way around. Lastly, if you have something you'd like me to read for you personally, I'm open to taking commissions. Drop me an email and we'll discuss details. Doesn't even need to be horror. I've been told that my voice helps people drop off to sleep, so I'm happy to read whatever you like as long as no laws are being broken anywhere. All right, on with the story. I was now in Washington Street and for the moment saw no living thing nor any light save that of the moon. From several directions in the distance, however, I could hear the sound of hoarse voices, of footsteps, and of a curious kind of pattering which did not sound quite like footsteps. Plainly, I had no time to lose. The points of the compass were clear to me, and I was glad that all the streetlights were turned off, as is often the custom on strongly moonlit nights in unprosperous rural regions. Some of the sounds came from the south, yet I retained my design of escaping in that direction. There would, I knew, be plenty of deserted doorways to shelter me in case I met any person or group who looked like pursuers. I walked rapidly, softly, and close to the ruined houses. While hatless and disheveled after my arduous climb, I did not look especially noticeable and stood a good chance of passing unheeded if forced to encounter any casual wayfarer. At Bates Street, I drew into a yawning vestibule while two shambling figures crossed in front of me but was soon on my way again and approaching the opening space where Elliott Street obliquely crosses Washington at the intersection of South. Though I had never seen this space, it had looked dangerous to me on the grocery youth's map since the moonlight would have free play there. There was no use trying to evade it, for any alternative course would involve detours of possibly disastrous visibility and delaying effect. The only thing to do was to cross it boldly and openly, imitating the typical shamble of the Innsmouth folk as best I could and trusting that no one, or at least no pursuer of mine, would be there. Just how fully the pursuit was organized, and indeed just what its purpose might be, I could form no idea. There seemed to be unusual activity in the town, but I judged that the news of my escape from the Gilman had not yet spread. I would, of course, soon have to shift from Washington to some other southward street, for that party from the hotel would doubtless be after me. I must have left dust prints in that last old building, revealing how I had gained the street. The open space was, as I had expected, strongly moonlit, and I saw the remains of a park-like iron-railed green in its center. Fortunately, no one was about, though a curious sort of buzz or roar seemed to be increasing in the direction of Town Square. South Street was very wide, leading directly down a slight declivity to the waterfront and commanding a long view out at sea. 
and I hoped that no one would be glancing up at it from afar as I crossed in the bright moonlight. My progress was unimpeded, and no fresh sound arose to hint that I had been spied. Glancing about me, I involuntarily let my pace slacken for a second to take in the sight of the sea, gorgeous in the burning moonlight at the street's end. Far out beyond the breakwater was the dim, dark line of Devil Reef, and as I glimpsed it I could not help thinking of all the hideous legends I had heard in the last thirty-four hours. Legends which portrayed this ragged rock as a veritable gateway to realms of unfathomed horror and inconceivable abnormality. Then, without warning, I saw the intermittent flashes of light on the distant reef. They were definite and unmistakable, and awakened in my mind a blind horror beyond all rational proportion. My muscles tightened for panic flight, held in only by a certain unconscious caution and half-hypnotic fascination. And to make matters worse, there now flashed forth from the lofty cupola of the Gilman House, which loomed up to the northeast behind me, a series of analogous, though differently spaced, gleams, which could be nothing less than an answering signal. Controlling my muscles and realizing afresh how plainly visible I was, I resumed my brisker and feignedly shambling pace. Though keeping my eyes on that hellish and ominous reef as long as the opening of South Street gave me a seaward view. What the whole proceeding meant I could not imagine, unless it involved some strange rite connected with Devil Reef, or unless some party had landed from a ship on that sinister rock. I now bent to the left around the ruinous green, still gazing toward the ocean as it blazed in the spectral summer moonlight, and watching the cryptical flashing of those nameless, unexplainable beacons. It was then that the most horrible impression of all was borne in upon me, the impression which destroyed my last vestige of self-control and set me running frantically southward past the yawning black doorways and fishily staring windows of that deserted nightmare street. For at a closer glance, I saw that the moonlit waters between the reef and the shore were far from empty. They were alive with a teeming horde of shapes swimming inward toward the town, and even at my vast distance and in my single moment of perception, I could tell that the bobbing heads and flailing arms were alien and aberrant in a way scarcely to be expressed or consciously formulated. My frantic running ceased before I had covered a block, for at my left I began to hear something like the hue and cry of organized pursuit. There were footsteps and guttural sounds, and a rattling motor wheezed south along Federal Street. In a second all my plans were utterly changed, for if the southward highway were blocked ahead of me, I must clearly find another egress from Innsmouth. I paused and drew into a gaping doorway, reflecting how lucky I was to have left the moonlit open space before these pursuers came down the parallel street. A second reflection was less comforting. Since the pursuit was down another street, it was plain that the party was not following me directly. It had not seen me, but was simply obeying a general plan of cutting off my escape. This, however, implied that all roads leading out of Innsmouth were similarly patrolled, for the denizens could not have known what route I intended to take. If this were so, I would have to make my retreat across country away from any road. But how could I do that in view of the marshy and creek-riddled nature of all the surrounding region? For a moment my brain reeled, both from sheer hopelessness and from a rapid increase in the omnipresent fishy odor. Then I thought of the abandoned railway to Rowley, whose solid line of ballasted, weed-grown earth still stretched off to the northwest from the crumbling station on the edge of the river gorge. There was just a chance that the townsfolk would not think of that, since its briar-choked desertion made it half impassable and the unlikeliest of all avenues for a fugitive to choose. 
I had seen it clearly from my hotel window and knew about how it lay. Most of its earlier length was uncomfortably visible from the Rowley Road and from high places in the town itself, but one could perhaps crawl inconspicuously through the undergrowth. At any rate, it would form my only chance of deliverance, and there was nothing to do but try it. Drawing inside the hall of my deserted shelter, I once more consulted the grocery boy's map with the aid of the flashlight. The immediate problem was how to reach the ancient railway, and I now saw that the safest course was ahead to Babson Street, then west to Lafayette, there edging around but not crossing an open-space homologist to the one I had traversed, and subsequently back northward and westward in a zigzagging line through Lafayette, Bates, Adams, and Bank Streets, the latter skirting the river gorge, to the abandoned and dilapidated station I had seen from my window. My reason for going ahead to Babson was that I wished neither to recross the earlier open space nor to begin my westward course along a cross street as broad as south. Starting once more, I crossed the street to the right-hand side in order to edge around into Babson as inconspicuously as possible. Noises still continued in Federal Street, and as I glanced behind me I thought I saw a gleam of light near the building through which I had escaped. Anxious to leave Washington Street, I broke into a quiet dog trot, trusting to luck not to encounter any observing eye. Next the corner of Babson Street, I saw to my alarm that one of the houses was still inhabited, as attested by curtains at the window, but there were no lights within, and I passed it without disaster. In Babson Street, which crossed Federal and might thus reveal to me the searchers, I clung as closely as possible to the sagging uneven buildings, twice pausing in a doorway as the noises behind me momentarily increased. The open space ahead shone wide and desolate under the moon, but my route would not force me to cross it. During my second pause I began to detect a fresh distribution of the vague sounds, and upon looking cautiously out from cover beheld a motor car darting across the open space bound outward along Elliott Street, which there intersects both Babson and Lafayette. As I watched, Choked by a sudden rise in the fishy odor after a short abatement, I saw a band of uncouth, crouching shapes loping and shambling in the same direction, and knew that this must be the party guarding the Ipswich Road, since that highway forms an extension of Elliott Street. Two of the figures I glimpsed were in voluminous robes, and one wore a peaked diadem which glistened whitely in the moonlight. The gait of this figure was so odd that it sent a chill through me, for it seemed to me the creature was almost hopping. When the last of the band was out of sight, I resumed my progress, darting around the corner into Lafayette Street and crossing Elliot very hurriedly, lest stragglers of the party be still advancing along that thoroughfare. I did hear some croaking and clattering sounds far off toward Town Square, but accomplished the passage without disaster. My greatest dread was in recrossing broad and moonlit South Street with its seaward view, and I had to nerve myself for the ordeal. Someone might easily be looking, and possible Elliott Street stragglers could not fail to glimpse me from either of two points. At the last moment, I decided I had better slacken my trot and make the crossing as before in the shambling gait of an average Innsmouth native. When the view of the water again opened out, this time on my right, I was half determined not to look at it at all. I could not, however, resist, but cast a sidelong glance as I carefully and imitatively shambled toward the protecting shadows ahead. There was no ship visible as I had half expected there would be. Instead, the first thing which caught my eye was a small rowboat pulling in toward the abandoned wharves and laden with some bulky tarpaulin-covered object. Its rowers, though distantly and indistinctly seen, were of an especially repellent aspect. 
Several swimmers were still discernible, while on the far black reef I could see a faint steady glow unlike the winking beacon visible before, and of a curious color which I could not precisely identify. Above the slant roofs ahead and to the right, there loomed the tall cupola of the Gilman house, but it was completely dark. The fishy odor, dispelled for a moment by some merciful breeze, now closed in again with maddening intensity. I had not quite crossed the street when I heard a muttering band advancing from Washington from the north. As they reached the broad open space where I had had my first disquieting glimpse of the moonlit water, I could see them plainly only a block away, and was horrified by the bestial abnormality of their faces and the dog-like subhumanness of their crouching gait. One man moved in a positively simian way, with long arms frequently touching the ground, while another figure, robed in tiarid, seemed to progress in an almost hopping fashion. I judged this party to be the one I had seen in the Gilman's courtyard, the one, therefore, most closely on my trail. As some of the figures turned to look in my direction, I was transfixed with fright, yet managed to preserve the casual shambling gait I had assumed. To this day I do not know whether they saw me or not. If they did, my stratagem must have deceived them, for they passed on across the moonlit space without varying their course. Meanwhile, croaking and jabbering in some hateful guttural patois I could not identify. Once more in shadow, I resumed my former dog-trot past the leaning and decrepit houses that stared blankly into the night. Having crossed to the western sidewalk, I rounded the nearest corner into Bates Street where I kept close to the buildings on the southern side. I passed two houses showing signs of habitation, one of which had faint lights in upper rooms yet met with no obstacle. As I turned into Adams Street, I felt measurably safer, but received a shock when a man reeled out of a black doorway directly in front of me. He proved, however, too hopelessly drunk to be a menace, so that I reached the dismal ruins of the Bank Street warehouses in safety. No one was stirring in that dead street beside the river gorge, and the roar of the waterfalls quite drowned my footsteps. It was a long dog-trot to the ruined station, and the great brick warehouse walls around me seemed somehow more terrifying than the fronts of private houses. At last I saw the ancient arcaded station, or what was left of it, and made directly for the tracks that started from its farther end. The rails were rusty, but mainly intact, and not more than half the ties had rotted away. Walking or running on such a surface was very difficult, but I did my best and on the whole made very fair time. For some distance the line kept on along the gorge's brink, but at length I reached the long covered bridge where it crossed the chasm at a dizzy height. The condition of this bridge would determine my next step. If humanly possible, I would use it. If not, I would have to risk more street wandering and take the nearest intact highway bridge. The vast barn-like length of the old bridge gleamed spectrally in the moonlight, and I saw that the ties were safe for at least a few feet within. Entering, I began to use my flashlight, and was almost knocked down by the cloud of bats that flapped past me. About halfway across, there was a perilous gap in the ties which I feared for a moment would halt me, but in the end I risked a desperate jump which fortunately succeeded. I was glad to see the moonlight again when I emerged from that macabre tunnel. The old tracks crossed River Street at grade, and at once veered off into a region increasingly rural and with less and less of Innsmouth's aberrant fishy odor. Here the dense growth of weeds and briars hindered me and cruelly tore my clothes, but I was nonetheless glad that they were to give me concealment in case of peril. I knew that much of my route would be visible from the Rowley Road. 
The marshy region began very shortly with a single track on a low, grassy embankment where the weedy growth was somewhat thinner. Then came a sort of island of higher ground where the line passed through a shallow open cut choked with bushes and brambles. I was very glad of this partial shelter since at this point the Rowley Road was uncomfortably near according to my window view. At the end of the cut it would cross the track and swerve off to a safer distance, but meanwhile I must be exceedingly careful. I was by this time thankfully certain that the railway itself was not patrolled. Just before entering the cut I glanced behind me but saw no pursuer. The ancient spires and roofs of decaying Innsmouth gleamed lovely and ethereal in the magic yellow moonlight, and I thought of how they must have looked in the old days before the shadow fell. Then, as my gaze circled inland from the town, something less tranquil arrested my notice and held me immobile for a second. What I saw, or fancied I saw, was a disturbing suggestion of undulant motion far to the south a suggestion which made me conclude that a very large horde must be pouring out of the city along the level Ipswich Road. The distance was great, and I could distinguish nothing in detail, but I did not at all like the look of that moving column. It undulated too much and glistened too brightly in the rays of the now westering moon. There was a suggestion of sound, too, though the wind was blowing the other way, a suggestion of bestial scraping and bellowing, even worse than the muttering of the parties I had lately overheard. All sorts of unpleasant conjectures crossed my mind. I thought of those very extreme Innsmouth types said to be hidden in crumbling sentried warrens near the waterfront. I thought, too, of those nameless swimmers I had seen. Counting the parties so far glimpsed, as well as those presumably covering other roads, the number of my pursuers must be strangely large for a town as depopulated as Innsmouth. Whence could come the dense personnel of such a column as I now beheld? Did those ancient unplumbed warrens teem with a twisted, uncatalogued, and unsuspected life? Or had some unseen ship indeed landed a legion of unknown outsiders on that hellish reef? Who were they? Why were they there? And if such a column of them was scouring the Ipswich Road, would the patrols on the other roads be likewise augmented? I had entered the brush-grown cut and was struggling along at a very slow pace when that damnable fishy odor again waxed dominant. Had the wind suddenly changed eastward so that it blew in from the sea and over the town? It must have, I concluded, since I now began to hear shocking guttural murmurs from that hitherto silent direction. There was another sound, too, a kind of wholesale colossal flopping or pattering which somehow called up images of the most detestable sort— it made me think illogically of that unpleasantly undulating column on the far-off Ipswich Road. And then both stench and sounds grew stronger, so that I paused, shivering and grateful for the cut's protection. It was here, I recall, that the Rowley Road drew so close to the old railway before crossing westward and diverging. Something was coming along that road, and I must lie low till its passage and vanishment in the distance." Thank heaven these creatures employed no dogs for tracking, though perhaps that would have been impossible amidst the omnipresent regional odor. Crouched in the bushes of that sandy cleft, I felt reasonably safe, even though I knew the researchers would have to cross the track in front of me not much more than a hundred yards away. I would be able to see them, but they could not, except by a malign miracle, see me. All at once I began dreading to look at them as they passed. I saw the close, moonlit spaces where they would surge by and had curious thoughts about the irredeemable pollution of that space. 
They would perhaps be the worst of all Innsmouth types, something one would not care to remember. The stench waxed overpowering, and the noises swelled to a bestial babble of croaking, baying, and barking, without the least suggestion of human speech. Were these indeed the voices of my pursuers? Did they have dogs after all? So far I had seen none of the lower animals in Innsmouth. That flopping or pattering was monstrous. I could not look upon the degenerate creatures responsible for it. I would keep my eyes shut till the sounds receded towards the west. The horde was very close now, the air foul with their hoarse snarlings and the ground almost shaking with their alien-rhythmed footfalls. My breath nearly ceased to come, and I put every ounce of willpower into the task of holding my eyelids down. I am not, even yet, willing to say whether what followed was a hideous actuality or only a nightmare hallucination. The later action of the government after my frantic appeals would tend to confirm it as a monstrous truth, but could not an hallucination have been repeated under the quasi-hypnotic spell of that ancient, haunted, and shadowed town? Such places have strange properties, and the legacy of insane legend might well have acted on more than one human imagination amidst those dead, stench-cursed streets and huddles of rotting roofs and crumbling steeples. Is it not possible that the germ of an actual contagious madness lurks in the depths of that shadow over Innsmouth? Who can be sure of reality after hearing things like the tale of old Zadok Allen? The government men never found poor Zadok and have no conjecture to make as to what became of him. Where does madness leave off and reality begin? Is it possible that even my latest fear is sheer delusion? But I must try to tell what I thought I saw that night under the mocking yellow moon, saw surging and hopping down the Rowley Road in plain sight in front of me as I crouched among the wild brambles of that desolate railway cut. Of course my resolution to keep my eyes shut had failed. It was foredoomed to failure. For who could crouch blindly while a legion of croaking, baying entities of unknown source flopped noisomely past, scarcely more than a hundred yards away? I thought I was prepared for the worst, and I really ought to have been prepared considering what I had seen before. My other pursuers had been accursedly abnormal, so should I not have been ready to face a strengthening of the abnormal element, to look upon forms in which there was no mixture of the normal at all? I did not open my eyes until the raucous clamor came loudly from a point obviously straight ahead. Then I knew that a long section of them must be plainly in sight, where the sides of the cut flattened out and the road crossed the track. And I could no longer keep myself from sampling whatever horror that leering yellow moon might have to show. It was the end. For whatever remains to me of life on the surface of this earth, of every vestige of mental peace and confidence in the integrity of nature and of the human mind, nothing that I could have imagined, nothing even that I could have garnered had I credited old Zadok's crazy tale in the most literal way, would be in any way comparable to the demoniac, blasphemous reality that I saw, or believe I saw. I have tried to hint what it was in order to postpone the horror of writing it down baldly. Can it be possible that this planet has actually spawned such things? that human eyes have truly seen as objective flesh what man has hitherto known only in febrile fantasy and tenuous legend? And yet I saw them in a limitless stream, flopping, 
hopping, croaking, bleating, surging inhumanly through the spectral moonlight in a grotesque, malignant saraband of fantastic nightmare. And some of them had tall tiaras of that nameless, whitish-gold metal, and some were strangely robed, and one who led the way was clad in a ghoulishly humped black coat and striped trousers, and had a man's felt hat perched on the shapeless thing that answered for a head. I think their predominant color was a grayish green, though they had white bellies. They were mostly shiny and slippery, but the ridges of their backs were scaly. Their forms vaguely suggested the arthropoid, while their heads were the heads of fish, with prodigious bulging eyes that never closed. At the sides of their neck were palpitating gills, and their long paws were webbed. They hopped irregularly, sometimes on two legs and sometimes on four. I was somehow glad that they had no more than four limbs. Their croaking, baying voices, clearly used for articulate speech, held all the dark shades of expression which their staring faces lacked. But for all of their monstrousness, they were not unfamiliar to me. I know too well what they must be. For was not the memory of that evil tiara at Newburyport still fresh? They were the blasphemous fish frogs of the nameless design, living and horrible. And as I saw them, I knew also of what that humped tiarid priest in the black church basement had so fearsomely reminded me. Their number was past guessing. It seemed to me that there were limitless swarms of them, and certainly my momentary glimpse could have shown only the least fraction. In another instant, everything was blotted out by a merciful fit of fainting, the first I had ever had. And that is the end of Chapter 4. We'll wrap it up next week with Chapter 5. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, please come join me on Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast. Joe Escott, Lauren Maines, and John McDonough, thank you for your support. Please go and get vaccinated for everything you are eligible for. If you see a racist out and about and doing a racism, dump a bucket of kitty litter on him because that's how you mask the stink of animal shit. And always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.